The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Um, today's scripture reading is from Micah 4, 6 through 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Thanks be to, be to Christ. God. Thank you, Randy. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. If I haven't had a pleasure of meeting you, my name is Paul Lim, and I serve here as a, a scholar in residence, uh, which means I preach once a month or thereabouts uh, in our three locations, primarily here, and then also have an opportunity to teach uh, our Gotham Fellowship, the uh, NIFW uh, National Institute of Faith and Work, our um, intensive there. So, well, if you're okay with it, let's uh, pray, and then we'll look to the Word of God for our continuing series on Micah and Forgiveness. Gracious God and our glorious Lord, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we thank you for this beautiful time of gathering together. Lord, as we encounter you through the liturgy of prayers and songs and word that was read, now may we continue to encounter you and be encouraged and edified and educated in the way of the Lord through the word that will be proclaimed. May that be taking place in the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of your name and for the edification of your church. In this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, today, this morning, we're going to be talking about the word future and what that means for a lot of people. When you think about the word future, when you think about future, what comes to your mind? What words would you describe uh, to talk about your future? Uh, could be a bright color, it could be a dark cloud, could be uncertainty, a number of different things. We are going to talk about the future as the book of Micah in the fourth chapter kind of opens it up for us. Um, last week, a good friend of mine sent an article called Dishonor Code, What Happens When Cheating Becomes the Norm. The article is about how cheating on college campuses, whether from Columbia to Clement McKenna, from the SEC to the Ivy League, from the University of South Carolina to the University of Southern California, to Penn State to the University of Pennsylvania, it has reached a new height, thanks to ChatGPT from OpenAI.com and other sources. Wild, wild future in many ways. So FYI, I did ask OpenAI to generate a three-point sermon from Micah chapter four, verses six through 10, and it spat out a sermon in 25 to 30 seconds. I saw it, and I read it like this with my eyes kind of half closed, and I said to myself, hmm, I can do better than that. I am Paul Lim, after all. So, 
Nerd versus nerd, it says the Susie Weiss, the free press reporter, said that, so now it is nerd versus nerd, and one of the nerds is going to win. Probably whoever gets more venture funding, everything is up in the air these days. Amy Kind, the Clement McKenna philosophy professor, is pessimistic about the future with open AI and other things. She says we're headed for one of these dystopian societies in science fiction where we just outsource all of our writing and projects and thinking to computers, and they do it for us. Soon, she added, we'll be at the mercy of our future computer overlords. Outsourcing of our college essays, outpacing our sense of moral convictions, outmatched by what AI says is a norm and normal, Could anything be wild? Could anything wilder be said? I would say yes. And that's what's called prophecies from the Old Testament. We're going to look at this prophecy of Micah about the future. And there will be three points that is generated by Paul Lim, not ChatGPT. First point will be prophetic future uttered. Second point will be Christological present proclaimed. Third will be pilgrims' fears redeemed. Future uttered, present proclaimed, fears redeemed. So let's get to these things together. Both prophets Micah and Isaiah, their living contemporaries, were writing in anticipation of the future restoration of Israel's glory after the agonizing and humiliating experience of exile. So as uh, Scott has been preaching for the last three Sundays from the book of Micah, chapters 1 through 3 have been pretty hard. Pretty hard in terms of what it was doing, describing the reality of the people of God. The period in which Isaiah and Micah lived and worked was that of the Assyrian supremacy in the affairs of what we would call the Middle East or Western Asia. It was the age of these four kings, Tiglath-Pileser III, Shalmaneser IV, Sargon II, and Sennacherib, both living around 745 B.C. to about 681 B.C., living and reigning in those periods. Those mighty and militarily genius monarchs under whom the westward advances of Assyria begun with a steady purpose a century prior culminated in the conquest of Syria, the fall of Damascus and Samaria, and in due course, reduction of Judah and other Palestinian principalities to a state of servitude and vassal status. Notice with me these four words. So what we're going to do today is, though the passage read is verses 6 through 10, we're going to start from verse 1 and then work our way through 10 today. So notice with me in verse 4, these four, uh, verse 1, it begins with these four words, in the last days. Similarly, in verse 6, which passage that Randy, Randy wrote, uh, read for us, it begins with these three words, in that day. In those last days, in that day, would be the kind of focus of our conversation because they're denoting some, something about the future. Uh, the prophet, Isaiah, uh, prophet Micah is saying, okay, it's, gonna be, it's not just going to be all doom and gloom. There will be in those last days, Yahweh is going to intervene in some spectacular and faithful ways that will bring about something different than what you might have expected. Amid a lot of political instability and cultural upheaval of the lapse of justice, confusion of moral categories, and overall lack of direction in life, Micah spoke of the prophetic future 
in order to reorient the pathways for the national present. He speaks about the future in order to reorient the present. Micah had uttered the words of judgment against Israel in the beginning of his prophecy. Then he proceeds to pronounce woe to the oppressors and identified and thus outed the false prophets in chapter 2, as Scott has mentioned. And yet, even in that section, the most scorching words of condemnation, Micah speaks about the redemption of Israel through the remnant of Israel, the remaining faithful ones. Not everyone, in other words, will desert the law of Yahweh. In chapter 3, Micah offered a summary judgment against rulers and prophets altogether. So after all those words of indictment and judgment, Micah utters a different kind of a prophetic future, one with the hope of restoration and redemption clearly articulated. Notice in verse 1, you have your Bibles or phones, it says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples of different nations will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Israel. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Beautiful and this beatific vision that the prophet offers to us. And why is that? Because when you think about the national status of Israel, it wasn't it wasn't the kind of country that, that other nations will flock to and say, we want to learn from you. We want to learn from your God. We want to actually change our ways so that we can adopt your ways of culture and your ways of worship. This was the height of glory for the nation of Israel, to have other nations come to you and say, hey, let's actually, we'll actually forsake our tribal deities and religious practices and go and worship the God of Jacob and God of Israel. That God, your God will be our God. That is the kind of prophetic future which will be so shocking that might go beyond ChatGPT. I spoke at Westminster Seminary, California, in Escondido uh, on Friday and, and yesterday. So I was driving from Escondido or San Diego to LAX, where I caught my flight home. It was about a two-hour ride. So after about two hours and after about 300 Teslas later, I thought to myself, geez, next time I might see a person who is behind the wheel of a Tesla completely conked out in sleep or reading the Twitter feeds or checking out his Snapchat photos while the car takes the person from a game of San Diego Padres to a concert, a Coachella concert, all self-driving cars. I say that only because I see a couple of Teslas that were being driven or someone was driving, I couldn't tell which, because the person was on the phone and head down the whole time, and I was next to the person, and I kept driving and driving. It's like well, the same thing. The head was kind of kept down. So kind of very interesting, utopian or dystopian future. You take your pick. Micah here similarly offers a prophetic, euphoric future vision here. Hear the words about these nations coming to the small nation of Israel. You know, think of a relatively obscure nation in the world today. You take your pick, whatever that country is. And in, let's say, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not going to word name a country because somebody will be offended these days. So I'll just say, think of a nation that you think is relatively obscure. To that country, every other country will come and say, we want to worship your God. We want to actually come and learn your ways. That will be the kind of thing that uh, Micah is talking about. 
Not only is the Lord the provider of true worship in verse 2, we also see that the Lord will emerge, the God of Israel will emerge as a dispenser of true justice and creator of true peace in verse 3. He will judge between many peoples and he will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's right. I want us to kind of, you know, park our minds together and soak in or sink in on these words a little bit. Peace will be brought. He will be the judge. He will settle disputes. But then what they will do is many nations will come and under the the guardianship and the lordship of the God of Israel, all these nations, they will beat their swords into plowshares, convert kind of weaponry into something that's going to be manufacturing, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for any more, war for any more. Think about that. If there is anything that nations desire, any nation could be the America, you know, the United States, Russia. Moldova, Ukraine, Sri Lanka, Bolivia, Argentina, Nigeria, you take your pick, South Sudan. What people want more than anything else is peace. Peace is not absence of war necessarily, but the presence of Yahweh. Peace is not necessarily absence of war, although that really does help. But more than that, according to this text, it is the presence of of the God of all universe, who is going to settle disputes, judge between peoples, so that no nation will be taking up arms against other nations. Now, let's think about that. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that glorious? Because we want that. We want the war between Russia and Ukraine to stop. We want all the other genocidal attempts or other structural injustices to stop because we realize those things do not help people to really come to understand God. Now we come to today's text in verse 6. In that day, although we do not know for sure ourselves, the prophet Micah could see it in his own vision of the arrival of that definite day. He says that day will come. It was going to be a day of gathering and assembling of the lame and the exiles. In other words, God of Israel was going to gather his people who are feeling defeated, dejected, crippled, homeless, and hopeless, that God is going to do that. Because notice this, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I brought to grief. I have done that, but I'm going to also bring them back. So according to this uh, Jewish commentator, uh, Max Margolis, from his commentary on Micah, published in 1908, he says these words, the gathering of the dispersed must naturally precede the constitution of the ideal community on Mount Zion. Because in verse 7, the, the Lord continues, I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them on Mount Zion. That this is going to happen, that gathering of the dispersed, gathering of the exiled community will take place before this establishment of true peace and tranquility will come about. What is really fascinating here is the subject of verses 6 and 7. If you look at that, notice it reads, I will gather, I will assemble, I will make the lame my remnant, and so it is the Lord who will rule over them. 
On this, let's actually take a listen to what this refugee pastor from 16th century Geneva named John Calvin had to say. He was living as an exile himself from his homeland in France. In fact, the Protestant Reformation, from which we draw a lot of our own theology in the Reformed tradition, is best described as the Reformation of the Refugees. Heiko Obermann was one of the world's leading scholars in the field of Reformation studies, and he wrote a book called John Calvin and the Reformation of the Refugees to that effect. Exile and migration were leading patterns of early modern life in Europe. Because of the religious kind of upheavals or reformation, many had to leave Italy. For example, if you're Protestant, you had to go somewhere else. If you were in a Catholic land, then you had to go to a Protestant land. So that kind of brought about this exile and migration. And as such, Calvin and other refugees could take existential solace and draw comfort from the text of the Old Testament prophets when he was saying that God will bring you to exile, but also God will bring you back from exile itself. Living by the rivers of Babylon, as the psalmist writes, one could sing, how can one sing and say that we will sing the Lord's song in Babylon in a foreign land? So here is Calvin's commentary on Micah 4.7. He says, but Micah does not here name the posterity of David and mentions Jehovah himself, not to exclude the kingdom of David, but to show that God would become openly the founder of this new kingdom. So what Micah is trying to get at is this, that God is going to do something that's going to be similar to, but in in, in a substantial way, different from what had happened before. That Israel was an earthly kingdom. It was led by David and his posterity, Saul and then David and, and their posterity. But then God himself is going to rule over this new kingdom where he's not going to be invisible or shadow figure. God is going to be prominent in the way that everyone follow the new leader. And what is that new kingdom? As we will see, it is going to be the kingdom of Christ. That leads me to my second point, Christological present proclaimed. So the second point is Christ's present proclaimed. Look with me in verses 8 and 9, shall we? As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. So dominion, kingship, it's going to be, it's going to come back, but in a different way. Why do you cry aloud? What have you no king? Right? Look at these words. The former dominion will be restored. Your kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. And then the two questions, two penetrating questions are asked. Have you no king? Why do you cry aloud? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? So the second point is about Christological present. So having talked about this prophetic future that is to come, what we are doing here is to really re-read this text or read this text through the lens of Jesus Christ, the Messianic King, the Son of David, as well as the Lord of David, and really examine what that means. But before we get there, let's take a listen to these two questions again. Have you no king? No king, no ruler means chaos, instability, and fear. Has your ruler perished? Can you imagine waking up one morning in our life and finding on our Tennessean.com or foxnews.com or cnn.com that the president of the United States has disappeared and gone AWOL? That would, be, that would probably set in panic mode in our nation or pain may, may ensue economically, politically, or existentially. It may overtake us so that pain seizes you like a woman in delivering a baby. Who might be that king and ruler worthy of this description is the question. So the second point being Christological present. 
In the Jewish prophetic tradition, whether Isaiah or Micah, there was an ardent longing and expectation for a king of the lineage of David and one with messianic proportions, meaning that right around this time of Micah and Isaiah and certainly all the way up to the time of Jesus, there was a real intense longing for the one who would fit the description of the prophetic text, if you know what I'm saying. Someone who will do and be better than his predecessors. So be in the line of David, but be better than David. Who might this be? Well, that is the question of questions among the people of Israel then and even now. Let me share with you this, uh, what I mean. So remember in the book of Acts chapter 1, Jesus is resurrected. His apostles are re, uh, kind of uh, reunited with him. And notice in chapter 1 verse 6, they asked him this question. The question that they asked was this. They said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Did you hear that? So the, the, the apostles are excited to see Jesus again, and their first question was, Lord, are you going to do what? Restore the kingdom to Israel. Notice those words, kingdom, restoration to Israel. Right? I want you to think about that. They were obviously asking the question about the actual material kingdom of Israel, right? Are you going to, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? Make no mistake about it. What Isaiah and Micah were looking forward to was the restoration of kingdom to Israel, material and spiritual. If you were to ask Isaiah and, and, and prophet Isaiah, are you waiting for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel in the material sense or spiritual sense? You know what Isaiah will say? He will say, yes. It's not either or, but we're looking for material restoration of the kingdom, but also the material restoration of the kingdom will mean that there will be spiritual significance attached to it. If you were to ask Prophet Micah, are you looking for the restoration of kingdom to Israel in a material way or spiritual way? Micah will answer, yes, or looking for both. Notice this is what, what is happening here. That, that it is safe to say that they too are looking for the messianic king whose mission and scope of the kingdom of peace was understood in material, this worldly terms, as well as spiritual terms. Okay? So notice with me in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Jesus' response to that question, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I don't know about you, but if I had been there, if I had asked Jesus the question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' answer is that. I don't know if I would have said, huh, it makes perfect sense to me. I would have said, I don't know if I follow you because I'm asking you about whether we'll have our kingdom restored to us and you are saying that the date and time nobody knows except the Father and but when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to be my witnesses? The Greek word that, that's used for the word witness is martyros, from which we get the English word martyr. That you're going to be my martyrs. You're going to bear witness to my real presence, my new kingly presence, the Christological present will be proclaimed through you because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you're going to proclaim that in all the earth, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the, the earth. So the, often, so the apostles, in other words, were asking a nation-bound question. 
Jesus answers it by starting with Jerusalem and but going beyond Judea and Samaria and ending with the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth meaning that all of the world, all of the cosmos is implicated or involved in the new kingly rule of Christ. The apostles were talking about a physical kingdom and Jesus answered it by talking about the power of the Holy Spirit which will prompt them to be witnesses. In other words, when Pilate asks, are you a king? As uh, uh, Pilate asked Jesus, and he answers it by saying, yes, you're right when you say that I'm a king, but my kingdom is of a different kind. It's from a different world. But yet he never, Jesus never shied away from affirming his kingship. Kingship, the kingdom of Christ, is less material, but more spiritual. But when everything is completed in the eschatological future, it'll be both material and spiritual significance. And then where do we see that, we might ask? And I'm glad you asked. Because where we see the kingly rule of Christ is right here. Right here in the church, as a church militant, meaning church is fighting against itself and fighting against the world and against our own kind of sinful natures that are still residual. It says, you know, the, the kingly rule of Christ is in our hearts and in and through the church. So if you were to ask, okay, do I have a new citizenship? That is exactly right. Paul in Philippians 3 talks about the fact that we're looking for a new colony that is yet to come that is already here. We have a new ruler, and that means the ultimate kingdom and transnational allegiance we have to have is to Jesus first and to his kingdom first and to every other kingdoms of the world second. Whether it is the kingdom of the United States or United Kingdom or if it's a kingdom of Norway or Nigeria, whether it's a kingdom in, in Colombia or wherever else it may be, all the kingdoms of the world are secondary and tertiary because a primary kingship kingdom is that of Jesus. We interpret these texts in Micah and Isaiah and other texts through the lens of the suffering servant, the one to come, the one the angels long to see, and the outsourced agent who is called to do the work of restoration of Israel and, the, and to the ends of the earth is none other than the church. So notice within verse 9, why do you cry aloud and have you no king? Has you ruler perish that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? For most of us, most of us sitting here or watching even through live stream right now, our experience in the church might not be like crying aloud or having a birth, pain seize and grip you. Yet, as I said earlier, when we look around in different parts of the world, whether Syria or Turkey or Ukraine or Russia or China or South Sudan, Following the true son of David, the Lord of David, today comes with a fear factor and threat of persecution. In this global context, we need to remember these words of a refugee pastor. But we ought to bear in mind that the life of the church is not without a resurrection and persecution. It is not without many resurrections and many persecutions together. This we learn from the words that are prophet when he says, I will then gather the halting the, and the assemble the exiles. And then he adds, and her whom that I've, that I've afflicted. And when this is expressly said, the faithful may know that God can bring out from the grave those whom he had, he had delivered to death. Because if the Jews had been destroyed at the pleasure of their enemies, they could not have hoped for a certain a remedy and restoration from God. God is the one who will redeem people from their exiles. That lead me to my third and the final point, pilgrims' fears redeemed. So future uttered, present proclaimed, and fears redeemed. Look with me in verse 10. It says, rise in agony, 
daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. Rise in agony. Suffering pain must, must leave the city that you're going to leave your hometown and you'll go to a different country, you'll go to Babylon. These are fear-inducing expressions, aren't they? If someone were to tell you that you're going to be refugees, that you're going to have to evacuate from your home because you're going to have to leave the things that are familiar to you, those words will be fear-inducing. Fear. What is fear? I mean, fear seems to be around. I think you all remember COVID-19. It's not in the past exactly, but COVID-19, one of the words that, that some other words that you can use in association with COVID-19 will be fear. People are afraid of COVID-19, afraid of catching it, afraid of its spread, and afraid of what will happen if and when you catch it. How many of you had COVID so far? Okay. Me too. So when you had COVID, were you afraid? Not really? You thought you'd be okay because you're young, you're a young, young, young-looking guy that you are? Okay. I had COVID in January. Okay, my, my mom said, oh, you'll be just fine. Give it a few days and you'll be okay. My doctor said, you'll be fine. My wife said, yeah, you'll be okay. But somehow, lurking in my own heart was a fear factor. What if I don't make it? I'm not 23 like you. I'm 55, so I, like, I may not be able to make it. What's going to happen? That fear factor was real, I want you to know. We have to be mortal means to have some kind of fear. Fear about friendships, fear about finances, but fear also about final destiny for many people in the world. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, you know what? One of the things that Jesus came to do and accomplish was to rescue us and redeem us from the fear of death because that was the way that Satan kept us bound in servitude, the writer says, very, very emphatically. So these are, and then so people who are going to writhe in pain, leaving the city, going to Babylon, these, these are, but then he also says, you will go to Babylon, but I will rescue you. You will go to Babylon, but I will redeem you from your enemies. These are promise, promissory notes that I, I've spoken it, I will deliver it for you, and how do we know? How do we know? We know it because God is the Lord of history, but also we know it because God has come in Jesus Christ to experience fear himself. Thomas Hobbes is an English philosopher who lived between 1588 and 1679. And he said these words. He said, when I was born with the news of Spanish armada arriving at the English shores, my mother gave birth to twins, myself and fear. <laughs> you know, I was, throughout my life, he was, because he was, you know, he was hunted down by people who thought that he was a heretic. But so he was said, you know, I live with fear all my life. His, uh, one of his best-known books is called Leviathan, published in 1651. And I teach that at Vanderbilt here and there a lot, actually. And he writes these. And what I like about Thomas Hobbes, especially his book Leviathan, is he's utterly and ruthlessly honest about the human condition. These are his words. No arts, no letters, no society. And which is worst of all, we have continual fear and danger of violent death. And the life of humans is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and worst of all, short. This is human life at its most naked and basic analysis. So what do we do? What do we do with fear? I think what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers more than anything else is the incarnation. Let me say that again. What the gospel of Jesus Christ offers better than any other isms and schisms and systems of the world 
is God himself being right where we are, clothing himself in human frailty, experiencing what it means to go through daily growth as well as fear of losing friends and fear of death, and he has overcome it all so we can come to this Christ who is conqueror of fear. Let me wrap it up by talking, giving, sharing with you a poem that I really enjoy reading and has ministered to me a lot, as will be shown on the screen in just a minute. It's a poem by uh, John Donne, who was an English poet, uh, who uh, was the preacher, uh, chief preacher, primary preacher at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And this is a hymn called Hymn to God the Father. And he's talking about a problem of sin. Can you see it okay? Help. Yeah, all right. So this is what he says. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? He's talking about the original sin of Adam and Eve. Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? He says, I do what I hate, but I end up doing it, and I hate what I do. Where's my help? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. So that's, he says, okay, I have a problem because I have not only the problem of original sin, but also I actually commit sins myself, so we got a problem. Second stanza says, Wilt thou forgive their sin which I have won others to sin and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive their sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? So it says, I try to fight this temptation of sin but for a year or two, but then I just gave in, and I also made other people sin because of me. When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. So let's stay right there. And before we go to the last uh, stanza, he says, okay, we have a, all of humans have a predicament and, and dilemma called sin. Either you, whether you're aware of it or not, we're all mired in it. He says, I am implicated in the Adam sin of original sin, but also I may, I may encourage others to be sinning. So and he goes, when I have asked you to forgive me, you have not done because I have more sins to forgive. Uh, for, 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 uh, uh, to confess. So let's go to the last stanza. How does he resolve this problem? He says, I have a sin of what? Fear. I have a sin of fear that when I've spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. That when I've, when I've arrived in the final destination, I'm going to perish because that is my fear. But swear by thyself that at my death, thy son shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, Thou hast done, and I fear no more. I love it. He says, you know, when I, when, I, when I only bank on myself, when I arrive at the final destination, I know I'm going to perish and die and disappear. But what I need to know is that your sun will shine as he does, and when you have done that, then you really have done it, and then I fear no more. I often read, I often read this poem as I give the students the final exam in the classes I teach, you know, because, you know, you have this fear about this final exam, but having done this, you'll be okay. And then one of the students said, Professor, can we get this grade then, this grade of grace? I said, well, you know, this grade of grace of free forgiveness is not the economy that operates at Vanderbilt University, but it is the economy that operates at Christ Presbyterian Church. It is that economy of free grace at someone else's dearest expense that we're about to receive and celebrate together in the Lord's Supper, which means that this right here is God's free gift to you and me. That means more than anything else, we encountered risen and living Christ, who has indeed taken away the fears that we have, that, that pilgrim's fears are going to be redeemed because your fear of death, my fear of death, 
My fear of loneliness, your fear of insignificance, my fear of insignificance, and your fear of loneliness, all of our fears have been consummated when Jesus, who was afraid but no more, who prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done, is the one who is inviting all of us to come and receive the elements with joy and gratitude and with a desire to share it with others. So pray with me. Gracious God, in our glorious heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you that the prophetic future was uttered and the Christological present was proclaimed. And best of all, that our pilgrim's fears have been redeemed because you have come to us, near us, lived our life, fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill so that we may come to you with joy and gratitude today at this moment in the Lord's Supper and say, you are my all in all, for you have become one of us. Thank you for inviting us to yourself. As we do that, may we receive these elements with joy and gratitude. Thank you in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.